have you heard of the Torah coming out of Berlin? I've spent the last six years of my life studying in Batemi Drash, houses of study in New York and Jerusalem. But the Torah that's coming out of Berlin has its own unique power. Volunteers and activists, rabbis and students, the Jews of Berlin have a thirst that cannot be quenched, a curiosity that cannot be satiated. They want to learn and they want to create. The Torah of Berlin is different and strange and the whole idea can be a little uncomfortable, but it's a Torah that draws you in and makes you see your own life and your own Judaism in a whole new way. So come and learn. Welcome to Torah Curious. Hello. And welcome back to Torah Curious. I'm your host, Jeremy Borovitz. And we have a very, uh, a very, very important guest today. Perhaps, with all due respect to all the guests past, perhaps the most important guest we've ever had, uh, Rabbi Rebecca Blady. Welcome, Rabbi. You have to say that, don't you? <laughs> um, Rabbi Blady, I wonder... Uh, for those of you who don't know, Rabbi Blady, in addition to being uh, the executive director of Hillel of Deutschland and Base Berlin and my boss, is also my partner and wife of four years and the mother of my child. Uh, Rabbi Blady, I wonder if you could tell us about your earliest Jewish memory. Oh, that's it? We get right into it? We, we don't get, get to right joke into around? It. No, no, no. We get right into I it. I feel like we should have done some kind of survey before our episode. <laughs> Asking people what they want to know, the deepest, darkest secrets of our marriage or something. Well, we'll get there. But <laughs> first, I want to hear about your earliest. I actually don't even know the answer to this. What is your earliest Jewish memory? So I thought about it. And it's actually hard for me to think about an early memory that wasn't Jewish. Isn't that crazy? Like, I feel, I feel like so much of my upbringing revolved around Judaism like all the special occasions we went to shul every single week so there was always that anchor that was really important for my parents but I actually when I think about it I feel like I was about three years old or something and my mom would take me to shul and I would sit right next to her there was no uh you know we grew up in in the states in New York uh, so there were lots of different resources for Jewish families, but at our shul, it was kind of a, a small shul, and there was no kids program going on, uh, or maybe there was, I, but it wasn't that significant at the time. And I was as young as three years old, and I would sit next to my mom in shul, and I had a little pink sitter, and we would just sit. And... Uh, yeah, I remember sitting there and <laughs> learning about shul with my little pink sitter um, and then continuing to go as I got older. Did you like it? There was something comforting about it, something familiar. It's hmm. a very old feeling going to shul and feeling extremely familiar. Um, yeah. When do you first remember loving something in Judaism? Loving something? Like, it, I, you have a lot of memories that sounds like they were really comforting. Mm -hmm. And it was like, oh, the routine, and this was what we did. When do you remember, when was the first time that you remember falling in love with something in Judaism? 
feel like it's got to be Pesach. Okay. Tell me more. There was something really exciting about Pesach when we could get together with the whole family. My Usually we did it with my mom's side. But it was really fun because it was this, like the Seder is kind of a long night. And I had a lot of older cousins on my mom's side. And that was quite exciting to be around my older cousins and and my grandparents and my aunts and uncles. And we got to do the Seder together. And sometimes we would go away uh, for Pesach. And that was also a treat when I was young that we got to stay in a hotel and have this different environment um, and, yeah, and be together and have this kind of quality time. That was really exciting when I was younger. Yeah. It sounds like family is what you loved. Yeah, I did. Yeah. Do you, like, it's a really interesting question, but, like, do you, is there any difference to you between your family and your Judaism? Hmm. Like, can you think back to your Judaism without thinking about your family? In my early years? I don't think so. Wow. I don't think so. I mean, I can think about my family in terms of different things that we did together, different personalities, of course. But the Jewish element didn't really become distinct until I was a bit older. When did it become distinct? Probably when I was in high school. Probably when I was, a, you know, in my mid-teens to late teens. <laughs> and I figured out that there were lots of other perspectives on Judaism that intrigued me. Wow. Which was complicated, <laughs> as you might imagine, given that the two were bound up so closely together. Yeah. This is hard for Jeremy because he already knows everything. I don't know everything, <laughs> no. I, I wonder, was there a moment? Like, do you, can you think back to a moment where, like, because I think what you're alluding to is, like, there were, like, your whole life, your Judaism and your family were intertwined, and then suddenly there was a moment where, like, you're like, oh, I want, that sounds really interesting, but that's separate from this. So, like, do you remember that first or an early moment uh, when you started to experience that sort of mild dissonance? Or perhaps e more than mild. <laughs> I feel like the easiest answer to that question is when I was becoming a feminist. Okay, can you tell us about that? So I went to Orthodox Jewish school until, you know, actually, like, until I was in university. I was always in Orthodox Jewish school. But when I was uh, 13 um, or almost 14, I was supposed to start high school. I was going to go from middle school to high school. And my mom really wanted me to change schools because she wanted me to learn Talmud. And at the school that I was in before, they would not have taught Talmud to girls. Sometimes they taught Mishnah, which is like, you know, the, the basic level of the Talmud. It's not Gemara, which goes into all the different details and philosophies and laws. But we could only learn Mishnah, I remember, from photocopies, not from books. And why? Why? You're asking me why. I'm asking me why, too. <laughs> okay. The girls' classes were separate from the boys' classes. And I remember having lots of photocopies of Mishnah. And um, 
Yeah. And that was what we had access to. And so, yeah, my mom wanted me to change school so that I could have an actual Talmud. I could have an actual Gemara. And that was the first clue that there was something more than family at stake in my knowledge of Judaism and in how Mm. I understood Judaism. Like that was kind of the first moment that it became like, oh, there's a there's a lot there. And I have to put myself in an environment where I'm going to get the most that I can. And that was important to my mom, too. Wow. Yeah. Who was the driver more for you to go to a different school? Was it you or your mom? So my mom had the idea, but the thing is, is that I would not have left if I didn't want to go. The Hmm. decision was completely up to me. And I remember we went to look at a bunch of schools. We went to an even more religious school and we went to the, you know, the high school that would continue the school I was currently in. And we went to um, this new school that taught girls Talmud and we went to a public school which actually I was very <laughs> I was very upset about I didn't want to go to a public school at the time I really wanted to stay in in a Jewish environment and I remember at that moment when my dad really wanted me to go check out a public school and I just had this reaction at that time that was like no that's not right and also at that time I realized that I didn't want to continue in the school that I was currently in hmm. because I felt really stifled so I knew there was this one moment where I knew that I needed to be somewhere where I didn't feel so stifled but I still could start this process of uncovering all of the knowledge of Judaism that I didn't have access to before and make it possible to get that access because if I stayed in the status quo I would not have gotten that yeah. So I went to another Orthodox school, but it was a little more open-minded. <laughs> they didn't separate boys and girls, and I got to learn Gemara. And I learned it from rabbis who were men and from women as well. Wow. Like really awesome um, Jewish women who had studied Talmud, um, one of whom, uh, her name is Shira Heck Kohler, and Psh. she uh, she was actually a lawyer. And then became a teacher of Talmud and Judaic studies and she continues to work in this field and she's awesome so that was a highlight of Jewish education in that high school and uh was she were were her and some of the other female teachers were they the ones who sort of started getting had you heard the word feminism before I did my background research before this interview. I have to say that I wish I heard the word feminism before. I didn't. I I honestly can't remember when I first encountered it. Before my third year of high school, in the States we have four years, I went to a summer program that I think my family thought was this academic pre-college program at Brandeis University. It was called Genesis, um, where I was going to take a journalism course and creative writing and do some stuff that I didn't have the chance to do in in school. And when I was there, I learned that it was also a program that introduced principles of pluralistic Jewish community. Mm. So you had a bunch. <laughs> you had a bunch of sixteen and seventeen year olds there, 
who and community educators to facilitate the process of all of us teenagers building our own Jewish community and they really made it possible like it was really challenging yeah they really had us think about where we came from what our needs were for our spiritual identities and religious identities and we created our own services we did wow. our own rituals like it was it was actually amazing how hands off it was and i really give them a lot of credit now um the journalism and the creative writing was also really awesome and i'm really glad for that opportunity but at the end i i just felt so amazed hmm. at the fact that i could make something myself wow um i should also say that a lot of the alumni of uh, that genesis program are uh, also rabbis, I think. <laughs> <laughs> so there is something uh, any sh- Any shout-outs to any of our rabbi listeners out there? Oh, my gosh. No. No, okay. <laughs> it, no, just I, I, everyone on – I mean, the people on that program were wonderful and, and, and remain, um, for the most part, really active and committed to really good causes, Judaism wow. and not. Um, but my my memory right now is not going to do justice to all the people who are doing good things. So I won't name anybody, but I will just say that the community that was built there was really uh, powerful and moving for me. You know, it's, it's really interesting because I've, I've heard you t- obviously talk about this summer before. But something that I'm just putting together in this moment is there were two things that you got from that summer, which became so intrinsically linked to your life. The first is like journalism and creative writing and what the power of the written word can do for you. And journalism was a huge part of your life in university and in those first few years after university. And you also got this idea of how do we create a open-minded, pluralistic community that, that like we create, that is based on our roles. And both of these are such a huge part of your life right now. Yeah, and then we didn't even get back to the feminism part. We didn't even get back to the feminism you part. Forgot. You I forgot. I didn't forget. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, I'm a pro. This is uh, interview number 18. So, uh, mm. yeah. So when when does feminism enter the equation here? So I think around that that time uh, with two – yeah, no. Yeah, it was before my third year of high school. So I had two years of high school behind me, two ahead. And that was the time when people started thinking about university. Mm-hmm. And – I didn't have the, it was so crazy, you know, now that I think about it, I didn't have the language for this. But, you know, I came back to my regular environment, back to my uh, high school, and I realized that I thought differently than a lot of people. Hmm. I didn't necessarily want to go and be in the same career paths as as many people. Um, and and there was there was just something something I, I felt myself be different and I, and I didn't actually know what it was and I remember being introduced at a certain point to the Jewish Orthodox Feminist Alliance which is a great organization based in the U.S. that had existed already for for a while and um, I wrote a piece for them about an incident that happened actually at Shul my place of comfort, and this was definitely after that summer, um, where it was Simchat Torah, the holiday where everyone dances with Torahs. And my dad um, was kind of like, I don't know, I guess he was like championing my, my, my thinking at that time um, because 
yeah, I don't know. I was getting more interested in, in, in different ways of thinking, thinking about politics, local politics, national politics, um, thinking about the roles that women can have in society, thinking about careers. And he was really supportive of a lot of it. And so at Simchat Torah, I was really frustrated because we went to an Orthodox shul that women just sat on the side and watched the men dance. And he was like, I'll bring you the Torah. <laughs> so he brought me the Torah, like from the men's circle, just wow. kind of covertly left, brought it to me. <laughs> and all these women came around and danced. And I remember, I remember their faces. Like I remember them. And I remember passing the Torah to different women. And it was the first time that had ever happened, as far as I know. And then a man came and took it away and said, this doesn't happen at our shul. And that was the end of that. Wow. Was there ever any discussion about it? There was. There was. Um, I remember my dad and my uncle as well being viscerally upset. Um, And the women were so disappointed. They were like, that's not fair. That was such a good moment. And there was no ability to get back in touch with it. I think now there are more conversations that happen like that. But at the time, there wasn't really any meaningful follow-up, at least that I was a part of. I think it took a few years. Um, but yeah, there, were, there, was some, uh, some, there were some words. Wow. People not quite pleased with that (laughs) so they take the Torah away from you and is a part of you thinking I want to take that back well I wrote the piece for for the Jewish Orthodox Feminist Alliance and I think that was the first time I put it into words that I did want to take that back wow yeah I never put it into words before but how did you start taking it back um I started arguing with people (laughs) in school mostly um I started to realize I started to realize who were the other independent thinkers around me. Wow. And I started to observe the way that they communicated and the things that they communicated about and to make my own value judgments of what seemed to me to be important and what seemed to me to be just total BS. There was a lot of BS floating around my the environment where I grew up. A lot of wealth, a lot of materialism, a lot of focusing on things that I didn't think were super valuable. And I really resisted that and rejected that. And I started I started talking to my teachers more. I had some amazing teachers who I could actually articulate these thoughts to. Wow. Um and I don't know, what year was it? Like two thousand Six, seven, six, yeah. 2006, seven, um, in an Orthodox school. So there were some things that, you know, I, I got access to some language to put some of my thoughts together. Um, and some language had to wait until university. So like oh. the language of feminism wasn't super prominent, actually, like f- until I turned, you know, 18, 19 and really got it. And even then I was like, am I this? Like, even in university, I was like, am I a feminist? Is this me? Like, what is it? And I had to go through a whole process of learning about it at that age, um, which is also fine. Um, but what I, I, something I did get, actually, from 
from high school before I went to university was an introduction to liberal politics. Um, and that I got from from actually a couple of teachers. But I I was able to be on the debate team and do model Congress sessions and start to realize what it meant to have an opinion hmm. and to build confidence in talking about it. Hmm. Um, and that was really an important step for me. And I think from then I was able to really see that that fact alone, like wanting to shape my own opinions by learning and talking about them was unfortunately different wow. Wow. from a lot of people I grew up with. What does it mean to be a feminist to you? Now? Now. So I think today for me being a feminist means advocating for the cause of women's empowerment. Mm. And I think there are so many levels where there's still work to be done on that. Um, women's empowerment in society, I think, has been a cause for a long time. But I also think that there's still a lot of internalized internalized sexism, even on the part of women, and especially in the part of women in Jewish communities. I think oh. it's still something that I deal with, actually. Because, like, okay, we started this conversation talking about how my comfort happens in shul. Yeah. In Orthodox shul. That's like a deep, old, learned comfort from the age of three. Okay? Like... But that's not a feminist environment. That's not an environment that values the empowerment of women. And yet wow. it's so deeply comfortable to me and also challenges me with, I think, a lot of internalized sexism and bias against what a woman can do in Jewish life. And yet I still love it and it's still so comfortable and I still have to work with it. It's not something that I can just dismiss. Um, but I think like in the religious world... Um, feminism is a hugely important value and thinking about the environment the empowerment of women from that perspective is really important to me I also think today that we have to think intersectionally about feminism and there are ways that I should be using my feminism to lift up voices of women who don't have the same privileges that I do um, so thinking about how to build relationships and and really learn about the issues that affect other women who don't have the same uh, access or voice that I have access to hmm. um, is also really important. So, yeah, I'm. Yeah. Can I ask you a personal question? As opposed to, <laughs> <laughs> um, has your feminism changed since becoming a mother? Mm. By the way, I'm a mother. Everybody. Yeah. <laughs> Um, Tell us about this child. Yeah. <laughs> um, I don't know. Like, it seems, uh, hmm, I don't know. It seems like being, all the steps I took to being a mother are just a continuous outgrowth of this path. You know, I chose the way I wanted to give birth. That was a choice that I felt empowered to make. Um, I gave birth the way I wanted to. That was incredibly empowering. In our apartment in Brooklyn. <laughs> yeah. Um, and now I'm hoping that, you know, raising our daughter is also just going to be more along the same path, you know, I think. Mm. But you know that, you know, there are things that we make decisions together about. Uh, like Hindi, she picks her clothes every morning by herself. <laughs> she can wear whatever she wants. We don't dress her up in any kind of feminist way. <laughs> um, 
yeah and like figuring out ways to continue this this mission of identifying the parts of my tradition that I want to pass on to her while also making it very clear that she should not internalize the sexism that exists in some of the different environments that we go into it's really challenging but I yeah I mean it's it's hard and it's the same it's something that I'm dealing with and I don't know how to present it to her perfectly but I think in some ways she'll have a lot more than I do Mm. um so for now we're on the path together but she's gonna teach me one day (laughs) please god it's really interesting because you talk about these inherited comforts you know from the age of three our daughter is only a year away um and i think it's an interesting question what are the what are the comforts we're going to pass on to her and to what extent will they be freeing versus um uh not freeing um i i I think i I think we don't know you know we have this consciousness we let her pick out her clothes we try to follow her lead in so many ways and yet yeah but okay she's your daughter too and she has elements of your personality too. <laughs> we ha- we can't forget this. So so she makes demands of us already. Yeah, that's and I true. think Thank that, God. <laughs> that she's already very comfortable, I think, expressing herself in a way that I don't know if I was. And I would love to hmm. nurture that. Hmm. You know, when we tried to bless her on Friday night and she was like, Mm mm, you didn't like candles yet, because realistically it was too early, but she is used to us lighting candles just for her so she can see it and then giving her her Friday night blessing next to the candles. So she yelled at us. We had to stop blessing her, light candles for her, <laughs> and then bless her. Um, so I think we're already kind of seeing <laughs> some of the comforts that she prefers and she is making them known. So... We just have to keep encouraging that, I think. Tell me about Jewish feminism in Europe or in Germany. Mm. Well, I'm not the expert for sure. No, but I bet a lot of our listeners would love to hear what you have to say on this topic. For sure. So living in Berlin now for some some months, um, I think that there's not a ton of opportunities to be feminist in a religious Jewish atmosphere um, at the same time. Um, I just, I want to shout out also that the uh, Tzedveste and the Yalta Sude, the Jewish Student Union in Deutschland, are co-organizing a Jewish Women's Empowerment Summit, um, which I believe they do every other year. And uh, it's happening this year, and I'm really excited to go. So I think that that would be one of the newest environments where women can go and be Jewish and feminist at the same time. But generally speaking, um, here in Berlin, I am noticing that there are not so many spaces. Um, and I'm also noticing areas where we where we could do better at making Base Berlin a space mm. uh, to have and hold both of those identities at once um i think that part of it is just that there could be so much more knowledge in the community among women in particular what women can do 
who women can be as professionals, as human beings, Mm. also as religious women. And there's not a ton of knowledge or modeling here. There are definitely some. You know, we do have several women rabbis living in Berlin, um, including Rabbi Gesa Ederberg, including Rabbi Ulrika Offenberg. Um, so, so there are there are women here who do have these roles, um, and yet I think that there are still structures in place that, you know, make them a blessing and also don't allow as much. Um, as much opportunity for us to learn about that experience as we potentially could. Um, and I, yeah, I think there's a lot of education to be done. I think that there's also, you know, there has to be, a, there has to be kind of an inner conviction um, that this is important. And there's a lot going on today in Germany. Hmm. Um, yeah. It's so powerful what you're saying because you're you're saying not like knowledge is the path to feminism, like knowledge is the path to like choice and empowerment and figuring out who you are and what you want, and that's what happened to you. For me, it was. Yeah. For me, it was knowledge. It, well, it was a combination of two things. I would say it was a lot of knowledge, and then it was also a lot of mindfulness mm. around it, like figuring out where I came from that led me to this point and then also you know it's essentially what I got from my mother when I was 13 years old and had to pick a high school it's like yeah it, I don't think it can exist without the knowledge you know we can push and aggravate but when it comes to these two things that are so tense inside me the love for the tradition that in some ways leads to um, internalized <laughs> sexism <laughs> and this passion for feminism I I think knowledge is essential. Like mm. I, I can't just aggravate because then I'm giving up part of myself. So I have to study. I have to learn. That's what drove me to, to become a, a rabbi. And that's also why I chose the institution to study at, mm. Maharat, because that was a struggle that I could share yeah. with colleagues. Um, so here I am. I want to add one more element to the things you're talking about, which is space, because you were able to find yourself in spaces that allowed you to think this way, um, or that gave you the the room to figure out how you think. Um, And I think that's something you're still doing today, creating spaces where people can do that. Uh, Rebecca, I believe you brought a piece of Torah to share with us. It's a short one. It's more for the message. (laughs) Okay. Um, Pirkei Avot, Ethics of Our Fathers. Um, this one just jumped out at me this morning and, uh, it's in, uh, Perak Gimel Mishnah Aleph, I believe, chapter three, the first Mishnah. So it's a statement by Akavya ben Mahalalel. And he says, Da me'ayin bata ula'ana taholech v'lifnei mi'ata atid liten din v'chashbon. No where it is you came from, where it is you're going, and before whom in the future you will stand to receive din v'chashbon, an account of your life's actions, 
and the judgment based on that. Mm. Um, the essence of this statement in the context of the Mishnah is about cultivating humility. Uh, and I definitely read it as such. Know where you're coming from. We came from the basics of human experience, if you will. We were born, we were diapers, and at the end of our lives, maybe we'll wear diapers again, and then ultimately we'll be buried in the ground. Mm. And the only one who can really give us an account of where we've been and what we've done is God. Mm. Um, and that's, that's the saying that, you know, takes us to the end of our life. It's not a human being who can give us that judgment. It's, it's a higher divine um, power yeah. that can give us our judgment. So, yeah, this stands out for me because even though, first of all, I want to say that it's the essence of this is meant to instill humility in us, to allow us to think of ourselves as these kind of small creatures that are operating in the world and, you know, like, not to take ourselves too seriously and just to have the impact that we're meant to have mm. um, and not to think in, in these kind of grandiose schemes and, and imagine ourselves as all powerful because we're not. Um, so I, I appreciate that. And I also, um, I, I had the opportunity to learn this Mishnah first because it's actually written on my grandfather's grave. Yeah. Um, it was his saying. No, yeah. Yeah, my Zaidi. He, he used to say, know where you came from. No, if you know where you came from, you'll know where you're going. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, that's the Pirkei Avot, Pirkei Zaidi. Pirkei Zaidi. Yeah. But yeah, but this is also in some ways because it's, it, it's about that. Yeah. Right? Like even though I think Akavya ben Mahalalel meant one thing, I think when we read it today, we were like, well... Okay, where did we come from? Who did we come from? Where did we come from? And and if we know that and we can internalize that, then we have a sense of where we're going and what we're building and what is that little impact that we can make in our short time here on Earth. I think for you, the integration of your past and your future um, has to be happening in the present. Like, you, you, you feel such a comfort, such a love sitting in this synagogue that goes against all of the values you're trying to inculcate. And like, that's a part of you. You have, that has to be a part of you. And you have to move forward. Mm, did I just get totally curious? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's beautiful though, because I think it's one of the, um, it's one of the beautiful complications about you which is your ability to um, uh, hold these two truths at once. Your ability to say, this is such an important part of me, and this is not me. Yeah. I think it pervades your life. I think it's the part of the reason that you came to Europe. I think it's part of the reason that you do a lot of the things you do. Yeah. This is a part of me, and this is not me. See, I don't even need to respond because you already know. <laughs> Everything Jeremy's saying is true. He already knows it. But now there's Torah to back it up. See, that's why that's why Torah Curious is such an important and amazing podcast. <laughs> yeah. 
This is what it does. This is what it does. Um, I think it's the power of uh, Torah to help uh, elucidate that which we already feel. Bure Berlin, as it were. Mm. Um, Rebecca, thank you for joining us. Is there anything else you'd like to add? Before Wait, we're not going to give all the people like a super secret insight <laughs> to our marriage? Why did they even listen to this podcast? Guys, um, what, a, what a boring finale. Come on. <laughs> I think uh, it, it, it's maybe a little underwhelming for some of the folks back home. So g- g- is there anything you'd like to add? It's, it's open. What would you like to say? I don't know. What would you like to say? It's, this is your podcast too, you know, and this is the end of a first smashing yeah. season. So. Yeah. What would you like to say, Jeremy? I would like to say that I believe in the power of Torah to bring, to help us figure out who we are. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. I think that's really, yeah, I think that's really powerful. And you know what? The, you know what? Here, I'll give the people what they want. One of the greatest ironies of what Jeremy just said and the fact that we just had a whole conversation about life and a little about Torah is that Jeremy and I can never learn in Chavruta. This is something about us. We can never actually be a study pair. If we sit down and start studying, we just get super frustrated with each other and we can't do it. So I also wonder if the Torah has this potential to elucidate all these things about life, what are we doing here studying Torah together? And why can't <laughs> we actually have a Chavruta? And well, by the way, what was the, what was the exception? Pesach. Pesach this year, for those of you who don't know, there's a global pandemic. And uh, Pesach this year was just two rabbis sitting on cushions in our living room. It was more than two rabbis. It was her husband and wife. Yeah. It was us. It was us. It was us bringing the, the whole history of the Seder from both of our lives. Yeah. And we had a chavruta. Actually, had that's a chavruta. true. Hmm. I have to think about that. <laughs> Why is this night different from all the other nights? <laughs> yeah. And then we don't even want it to be, but it is. No. Sometimes just <laughs> we just, sometimes maybe we just need the space to be able to learn the Torah about who we are. Chaim. You needed to go to Genesis, to Brandeis University for that summer. You needed to be in your shul when your father handed you the Torah. You needed to go to Yeshivat Maharat. And now you needed to be in Berlin. And on that night, we needed to be sitting around the coffee table in our living room. Sometimes we just need the space. There aren't, it's not like we can just walk into any space and suddenly be everything we've wanted to be. It's a nice fantasy, but it's not a reality. We talk about safe spaces, but a safe space just means I can be a real part of myself here. Mm, Yeah. Yeah. Different people need different things for safe space. I think some people need to feel like they're not being judged. I think some people need to feel like they're accepted for who they are. I think some people need to feel like their voices are being elevated. And what I need to feel is there are no distractions. Mm. That's the only way I feel safe. Hmm. 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 So you did reveal a <laughs> deep, dark secret about Jeremy after all. Yeah. I reveal them every week. So. <laughs> You know, I shouldn't be so surprised. <laughs> um, Rabbi Blady, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I feel so honored to have been invited. Um, we're going to take a brief hiatus from Torah Curious. 
while we gear up for season two. Uh, but stay tuned. We're going to come back next season with a slightly altered format. Lots of new amazing guests and maybe some of our old friends will return as well. Uh, so Rabbi Blady, thank you. We hope you'll join us again. And thank you for all you do to support uh, this amazing podcast. Thank you. And thank you everyone for listening. Well, that's it for another episode of Torah Curious, the end of the first season. Torah Curious is a podcast of based Berlin, Hillel Deutschland, the home of a rabbinic couple in the heart of Berlin's Kreuzberg neighborhood. Huge thanks goes out to Rabbi Rebecca Blady for joining us today. Special thanks to Valentin Lutzet for the cover art, Alex Segura and Takayasuzawa for the music, John Earl for being a feminist icon, and our friend in the Bay who made this all possible. I want to spend a huge thank you to all our listeners. Stay tuned for season two of Tour Curious, set to drop sometime around Rosh Hashanah. In the meantime, keep learning and stay curious.